0: hebrews chapter ten verse thirty two to chapter eleven verse one the thirty-seventh talk in a series on the book of hebrews was presented by jack crabtree on may seventh two thousand seventeen at reformation fellowship the copyright for this recording is held by jack crabtree and is being made available to you by gutenberg college gutenberg college is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu contributions to jack crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com this material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes subject to the inclusion of this introduction all other rights reserved handout number 13 Translation, installment 2017, number 1, accompanies this talk. Please note the following correction. When Jack says, justice should not defeat injustice, he intended to say, injustice should not defeat justice.
1: We're in the book of Hebrews, continuing on. Hopefully, it's become clear over the last few weeks that this is something that was written to a whole other century, a whole other group of people. A whole lot of questions and issues and difficulties with the faith that are not our difficulties. And so it would be very easy to kind of blow this off. This is not relevant to me. This is not, I I don't really care much about about this because I don't have their questions. But I think we have, to, we have to remember that in a lot of ways, we're in very similar times to the times that Paul is writing to here. Uh, we, we are people who have been, as he, as he calls it in the letter, have been enlightened, but once having been enlightened, then we begin to drift away. And we know all kinds of people in our lives and our experience who they, they ought to know better you know, they've heard the gospel, they've understood the gospel, they've been confronted with the truth about Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished and so on, but they yawn and go on their way, or are beginning to yawn and go on their way. So the warnings that we're seeing Paul issue to the readers of, his, uh, of the book of Hebrews are warnings that are very relevant to us today. So it, we, we just need to adjust... To our time, but realize the the spirit of what he's saying and recognize how how vitally important and vitally relevant it is to us today. Um, we're going to finish up the exhortation before we go on into the next major segment of the of the letter or the work. Uh, we may not get that far today, but we'll we'll just see. I'm going to read from my translation the whole exhortation and and maybe make a couple of comments by way of review, and then we'll jump into it. So if you're looking on a, in a normal Bible, you're in chapter 10, verse 19, starting verse 19. But I'm, I'm reading from my translation. Therefore, brothers, since we can have confidence in the acceptance of the Hagioi, on the basis of the blood of Jesus, an acceptance that he inaugurated for us, Confidence in the new and life giving way that he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, the way of his flesh. And since we have a supremely effective priest in service to the household of God, by reason of this complete objective certainty to our belief, let us approach God with a true heart. Having sprinkled our hearts because of a consciousness of evil, and having washed our body with pure water, let us claim as our own the unswerving affirmation that provides a basis for hope. For the one who promised is trustworthy. And let us attend to one another such that we share in a mutual inducement to love and good works, not forsaking the gathering of believers together, as is the habit of some, but rather fortifying one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if after receiving a knowledge of the truth, we deliberately choose to act unrighteously toward it, a sacrifice for our sins no longer remains. But there is a certain terrifying anticipation of condemnation, even a fury of fire that is about to devour those who stand in opposition. Anyone who disregards the law of Moses dies without mercy on the basis of two or three witnesses. Of how much more severe punishment do you think he will be considered deserving the one who has stomped upon the Son of God and who has deemed insignificant the blood of the covenant on the basis of which one is sanctified and who has responded with haughty dismissiveness to the grace-imparted spirit. Now we know the one who said, Retribution is mine, I will repay. Then again, the Lord will rule over and deliver his people. To suffer punishment at the hands of the living God is frightening. Now remember the former days in which, after being enlightened, you endured a very challenging opposition that involved sufferings. On the one hand, in this manner, you were publicly humiliated by insults and assaults during a spectacle. And on the other hand, in this manner, you became sharers with those who were so treated. Indeed, you showed compassion to the prisoners and anticipated with joy the seizure of your possessions knowing that you have for yourselves a better and a lasting possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great re- reward. Indeed, you have need of endurance, so that, having done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Now, for yet a very little while, what is coming will come. Indeed, it will not delay. Now, the one who is dekaios before me by virtue of his belief, he shall have life. But if one hesitates, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, we are not of the hesitation leading to destruction. Rather, we are of the belief leading to the preservation of our very selves. Okay, that's the section we've been working on. We've looked at the first two paragraphs there. Um, In the first paragraph, very simply, to boil it down, he says, we have an absolutely objective certainty that If Jesus has your back, then you're going to get eternal life. You're going to get mercy from God, and God will grant you eternal life. God will not deny the appeal of the Son of God on our behalf. Uh, I might have been a little bit misleading last week. When I talk about the objective certainty of us getting eternal life, that's the objective certainty that we can have that a follower of Jesus is going to get eternal life that doesn't translate into objective certainty that I'm going to get eternal life. It is still contingent upon whether I'm a follower of Jesus. Am I a real, bona fide, genuine, authentic follower of Jesus? That's what this whole section is about. All of these people have been enlightened and have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They are all, to use our vernacular, Christians, right? They're they're all Jesus followers Uh, to start off with but they're beginning to have second thoughts and they're beginning to rethink that and they're beginning to change their minds about that and that's why he's writing this work is to say uh, you don't want to be doing that you were you were right to trust and hope in Jesus and he had that long explanation in the middle of the book of Hebrews to explain to us why we were right to believe in Jesus if we depart and reject it now, we are rejecting the only basis that exists for real mercy from God. So if the question is, well, have I rejected Jesus or am I still following Jesus? That's another question. That's a different question. And he has to exhort people to not give up on it precisely because that's always a possibility, that having begun down the path of following Jesus we would, uh, we'd give up on it. We'd grow weary, especially in the midst of the kind of persecution that, that his readers are. But the point he's making in that first paragraph is, it's the right way to go, is to trust in Jesus, because there is an absolute objective certainty that anyone who is hoping in and counting on Jesus to advocate for them is going to receive mercy and the blessing of eternal life. It's a, it's a done deal. It's given. Okay, in the second paragraph then, he gives us a warning. But if you reject it, you make yourself an opponent of God. You make yourself an enemy of God. And we have all kinds of indications from how God is going to run history from the prophets that tell us that the oppo- it does not fare well for the opponents of God. Really, there are two kinds of people in the world when it comes right down to it. Those who are going to receive mercy and get blessed with eternal life and those who are going to be subjected to the wrath of God and condemnation. You're going to fall in one of those two categories. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've made yourself an opponent of God, an enemy of God, and you're going to be subject to the wrath of God. So that's the warning that he offers in uh, in the second paragraph. Now, we've, now we come to the third paragraph. Here he says, okay, he, he's told them you're on the right track to follow Jesus. Uh, it's not good, Doesn't, you won't fare well if you reject him. What's the case with you, my readers? Well, you started well. Now remember the former days in which, after being enlightened, you endured a very challenging opposition that involved sufferings. Uh, the word there that I translated, a very challenging opposition, is a word that was often used of athletic competition. You've, you've got someone who's coming up against you, who's opposed to you, who's trying to defeat you. Um, well, that's what happened to you. After being enlightened, you endured a very challenging opposition to you. They wanted to defeat you that involved your sufferings. And he goes on to describe the sufferings. On the one hand, in this manner, you were publicly humiliated by insults and assaults during a spectacle. And it it sure sounds like what he's describing is the kind of public spectacle that the Romans really liked to put on. How how these Jews managed it, I don't know. How did they manipulate, if, if this was actually... Herod or the Herodian rulers, they were just imitating the Romans. But apparently they would publicly um, take you into an environment where somebody would literally assault you physically, violently a- attack you. You know, we know of the gladiators and uh, throwing Christians to the lions later. I don't think that's what we're talking about here, but it's, it's comparable being whipped or beaten or beat up on by somebody in public, in front of all these spectators who are watching, watching you get beat up, and they themselves are jeering at you. You're being insulted. You're being mocked. You're being ridiculed. So you're out here in public being shamed publicly, verbally, and physically. The, a complete, total Humiliation. That you've been are being subjected to. So, that's what happened. You heard about Jesus. You believed. Um, you believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Because you believed that Jesus was the Messiah, you became a target for the hostility toward the Jesus freaks of that day. You became a target, and lo and behold, uh, you were subjected to incredible public humiliation, with both physical and verbal assault. On the other hand, the other way you demonstrated your what seemed to be your sincerity in your belief is you became sharers with those who were so treated. You showed compassion to the prisoners and anticipated with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and a lasting possession. It's difficult to know exactly what the historical circumstances are here. The, the first one is easy, uh, Christians, believers, Jesus followers were thrown into prison and uh, Paul's readers began by showing them compassion, probably taking them food taking them water, uh, giving them bandaging them up, helping them in whatever way, giving whatever physical help they could while they were in prison, but obviously at great risk to themselves because for you to identify yourself as sympathetic with a Jesus follower in prison makes you a very obvious target. And apparently, one of the things that would happen is if you were willing to use your possessions to help the prisoners, well, they would just take your possessions from you. And I think that's what he means by the seizure of your possessions. And why were you willing to do that? Because you knew that you have for yourselves a better and a lasting possession. I mean that, That's the perspective that we lose sight of all the time. We, we get so grasping about that which is mine in this life, whether it's my time or my money or m- my energy, whatever. We get so grasping with that because we think that's what life consists of. We think that's where it's at. We think that's what we want. We think that's what we need. But these people, starting off at least, recognize that if, if investing my time, energy, um, money, and so on, in order to obey God and serve God and believe the truth, if having that consumed in the course of being obedient to God means that, I'm, that I won't have it here on this earth, That's okay, because I'm buying for myself a much better possession. Eternal life in the kingdom of God, obviously, is what he has in mind. Eternal life in the kingdom of God that is not going to go away, is never going to be consumed, is never going to be diminished. To have that forever is a far better possession than anything that I could possibly have in this lifetime. So if I have to use this in order to obtain this, if I have to lose this in order to obtain this, what a deal. That's a, it's a great business deal, great transaction. Uh, and that was their perspective. That was the right perspective. That was an enlightened perspective. That was a wise perspective. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The confidence that following Jesus will get you that reward and I think the confidence that that reward is worth getting, don't, don't throw that away. Don't waste the objective certainty that being a, a follower of Jesus will get you that eternal reward and eternal life. Uh, you're absolutely throwing it away if you don't avail yourself as an individual subjectively of the benefit that comes from being a follower of Jesus. So it's just his way of saying, don't stop being a follower of Jesus. That would be like crazy to do that in view of what's at stake. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Indeed, you have need of endurance so that having done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Now, I'm going to come back to that. I mean, that, that's the point uh, of the next paragraph. And in fact, really the seminal point of this whole exhortation. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. If you take a snapshot of all kinds of people's lives, they have believed in Jesus here, there, and elsewhere, any number of places. You can find people believing in Jesus. But what belief is only a mark that you are a child of God destined for eternal life if it perseveres. Having it doesn't make you a child of God. Believing doesn't make you a child of God. It's persevering in belief that makes you a child of God. It's going to be a relatively rare person who, being enlightened, did not get somehow inspired and invigorated by the truth to some degree. Who's not going to begin the journey? It's it's too exciting. It's too real. It's too authentic to be just shined on completely. I mean, you, you have to be really hardened against it to not respond to it at all. But in, in the flush of in the initial excitement, we're going to do all kinds of things. Heroic things, believing things, courageous things, compassionate things. Uh, the things that he's describing in this paragraph you can see that in the flush of your excitement and your enthusiasm, yeah, you'll go down to the prison and you'll help them. You'll, you'll get arrested, and you'll go to the Colosseum and endure whatever you have to endure at the Colosseum. But after you've done that, and after ordinary life sets in and the drudgery sets in and there's still no kingdom of God and there's still no kingdom of God and it doesn't seem to be paying off for you. All you are getting is grief and weariness and a certain level of boredom and it's, there's nothing about this faith that's paying off to you. Now what do you do? Well, the authentic child of God says, well, okay, okay yeah, there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of sorrow, and a lot of drudgery and weariness, but what am I going to do? It's true. What else could I do? It's the truth. It's the way the world is going to go. It's the way reality is going to go. If I want to be at the other end of reality, if I want to be a part of the people of God, existing in the kingdom of God, enjoying the blessings of the kingdom of God, I've got to hang in there. I've got to show myself to be a part of the people of God and a genuine, authentic child of God. Otherwise, my end is very different. So it's not paying off for me now. Okay, it's not paying off for me now. But it's later that actually counts way more than now. So I'm going to hang in there. That's the authentic child of God and his response to these circumstances. I, I know it's very confounding to see people, and we've had people in our experience, that seem so genuinely, heartfelt, enthusiastically, deeply, profoundly committed followers of Jesus who within a decade are nowhere to be seen. And it's really confusing. It's really confounding. I mean, I saw you back then. I thought you really believed. I thought you really thought this was true. Yeah, well, life happens. And the problem with life is it sorts you out. And it sees what your real commitments are, what what stuff your heart is really made of. Are you really someone whose heart deeply is enlightened into the truth of the gospel, such that you're going to stay with it and hang in there no matter what? Or was this just something that that you got caught up in because... It was exciting and fresh and new and different and looked like what you wanted. Well, if that's all it was, then, the, then there's no guarantee that you are a child of God. So that's why he's writing this paragraph. Indeed, you have need of endurance so that having done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And the will of God is that you endure, I think, in this, in this case. Now he goes to a passage that that dramatizes and underlines the importance of perseverance, and he goes to Habakkuk. Now, this was a while ago, right? I started to teach Hebrews back before I had a little detour in my life, uh, and we started by looking at this Habakkuk passage. I won't expect you to remember it, so I will review briefly. But uh, the reason I wanted to look at that Habakkuk passage is because it's It's at the heart of his argument here, is to recognize what he sees in Habakkuk that he thinks is relevant to them. He says, Now for yet a very little while, which, by the way, is not in Habakkuk, but I, at this point, I think it is a quotation, a citation. I think it's from Isaiah 26.20, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Now for yet a very little while, now he goes to the Habakkuk quote, what is coming will come indeed it will not delay now the quote the one who is dekaios before me by virtue of his belief he shall have life that's from habakkuk but another quote from another place in the same passage if one hesitates my soul has no pleasure in him and now paul now paul is speaking now we are not of the hesitation leading to destruction Rather, we are of the belief leading to the preservation of our very selves. Okay, let's go back and remember what's going on in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is prophesying before Judah has been taken into captivity, the southern kingdom taken, defeated, the temple destroyed, and the Babylonians taking them out of, uh, out of their homeland and into Mesopotamia. Before all that happened, Habakkuk is uh, is prophesying. He begins by complaining about Judah. I think it's Judah, if I remember correctly. Not Israel. I think it's the southern kingdom. He's complaining about Judah and their injustice, their unrighteousness, They're, they're wicked. They're a wicked people. And he's complaining to God. This is a wicked people to which God responds... Uh, no worries. Uh, God is Australian after all. <laughs> no worries. Um, I'm going to bring what he calls the Chaldeans, which I take it are the Babylonians. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, and uh, they're, going to, they're going to judge Judah. They're going to dev- devastate Judah in response to the injustice and wickedness and evil that's in Judah right now. To which Habakkuk responds, uh, uh, <laughs> "The Chaldeans are way more evil than the than the Judeans are." I mean, what? Okay, but that that's not right. There's no justice there, and and I would argue that that he gives voice to what is the fundamental issue for Habakkuk, and I'm beginning to think, and this is half-baked, so take it for only what it's worth, but I'm beginning to think this is the fundamental issue for all the prophets and all the prophecies that God gives to uh, Israel throughout throughout their prophecies. It all ultimately boils down to this. Wrong should not defeat right. Justice should not defeat injustice. There's something terribly wrong with the world if the unrighteous are victorious and the righteous get defeated. That's upside down. That's completely inverted. And when, God, when, God, are you going to set things right? Well, Habakkuk is a good example of this. Although a lot of people interpret Habakkuk this way, I think they're wrong. His, his God's answer to Habakkuk is not, well, I'll take care of the Babylonians too. Now, he does say that in Habakkuk, but that's, that's not his primary answer. His answer is not, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to beat up on the Babylonians and we'll, we'll settle things that way. Well, yeah, but who's going to beat up on the people who beat up on the Babylonians unjustly? And who's going to beat up on them? And then who's going to beat up on them? Where is justice ever going to actually be established? If all we're talking about is one nation-state being used to discipline and correct and castigate another nation-state, all we're talking about is history. That's all we're talking about. God's answer to Habakkuk is not, well, history will happen. Well, history is the problem. (laughs) That's not the answer. History is the problem. It's a series of injustices and oppression and war and violence and evil manifesting itself over and over and over again by one people against another people against another people. History answers nothing. So his answer is not, well, I'm going to let history happen, and that's, that's how it's all going to come out in the wash. No, he's looking forward to the resolution of history, To the denouement of history, where all the plot lines and everything is finally going to be resolved. Everything is finally going to come to be what it ought to be. And now no longer will evil have the upper hand over good. No longer will unrighteousness triumph over righteousness. The day is coming where everything will be set right and righteousness will reign Righteousness will prevail. Righteousness will endure and not be subject to the exigencies of history. Uh, Righteousness is going to, to be that which characterizes history instead of that which always gets victimized by history. That day is coming. Well, he has in mind a very distinct, definite day. And we've As we discussed it when we were looking at Habakkuk, that's the day of the great and terrible day of the Lord, where God is going to pour out his wrath against evil and injustice and is going to give redemption and freedom and liberty to the righteous, uh, what what few are left. That's That's what the it is here. What is coming will come. Indeed, it will not delay. So the it that he's talking about is that that end point of history, that time of denouement and resolution in history where um, all things are going to be inverted and the upside-down world that we live in is going to be righted. And right will prevail and unrighteousness will no longer prevail. That day is coming, he's saying. Now, he starts off by saying, now for yet a very little while. And the idea is, for a very little while, you have to wait until what is coming will come. Indeed, it will not delay. Well, that's out of Isaiah 26. And I would argue that if we were to go and look at Isaiah 26, which I don't fully understand, but the part of Isaiah 26 that I think I understand, I think it's talking about the same day that Habakkuk is talking about that point at the end of time, at the end of history, where God is finally going to come and set everything right. So the the part of that that's interesting to Paul is he says that day is going to come in just a very little while. It's not going to be long. Now, obviously, a very little while uh, relative to our lives, seems like an, an eternity. I mean, it's been many millennia, but from the standpoint of God's purposes, it's, it's not for lack of him wanting to get around to it. He's not delaying. He's not hesitating. He's not having second thoughts about bringing justice into the world. It's just, we just got to wait, but it will come. Now, Why why does he add that here in this paragraph? Well, it's highly relevant to um, people who are in the position that his readers are in. They're in the midst of persecution. They're in the midst of physical and verbal assault. They're being humiliated uh, because they, they believe in Jesus. Well, the point that he's making is, when that day comes, you are going to be the one who is going to be vindicated. You're the one who's going to prevail. You're the one who's going to be freed and rescued. It's your persecutors who aren't going to like that day when that day comes. So it's not far off. Just endure a little longer. Just endure now. That could be to the rest of their lives. Okay, but... But his point is a logical point, not a chronological point. It's no matter how long it takes, no matter how long you have to endure this, it's a, it's a brief time compared to the reward that awaits you. I think I mentioned this last week, the way Paul puts it in his letter in, in Corinthians, that we are undergoing momentary light afflictions and our momentary light afflictions are producing for us a great burden of glory. So, when, when, you, when you evaluate them, it doesn't really matter how long you have to endure persecution. Compared to the reward that you are gaining for yourself by doing so, there's no comparison. Of course it's worth it whatever it costs you is not too great a cost to, to buy for yourself that, that reward. So, for yet a very little while, what is coming will come, indeed it will not delay. And then, in, and then what Habakkuk says, and Paul quotes it here, the one who is dikaios before me, and remember dikaios is, I, I leave it untranslated because I, I want us to get that concept and make it a working concept, it's to be accepted by by god such that he's going to grant us mercy and eternal life rather than condemnation and destruction that's what it means to be dekaios as if god is a judge and his sentence is let him in let him into the kingdom of god that's to be declared dekaios by god the one who is dekaios before me by virtue of his belief, he shall gain life. And the life he's talking about is eternal life. So what, what's interesting to Paul, in he quotes this in three of his letters, this Habakkuk passage, is look what Habakkuk is saying. What is it that makes this person dechios in God's eyes? It's his belief. It's the fact that he believes. Well, the one who, because he believes is the chaos in God's eyes, is going to be granted life. But, by contrast, if one hesitates, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, what, what's not explicit, but I think it's pretty clear that that's what is going on in Habakkuk, the one who hesitates from believing, my soul has no pleasure in him. So, we have a choice, When faced with the promise of God, I will one day set all things right. If you believe that, and you count on that, and you hope in that, then you are someone who's going to inherit life. If you go, yeah, right. Believe that when I see it. That ain't going to happen. If you hold back your commitment to the truth, of God's promise in that regard. God's soul is not pleased with you, and he's, he's saying in the next sentence, that leads to destruction. So now he says, now we are not of the hesitation, hesitation to believe, leading to destruction, but rather we are of the belief, the, the group of people who believe the promise of God, leading to the preservation of our, our suke, our very selves, our souls, our very selves, our very persons. Now, how, how should we take that last sentence? I'm not exactly sure. Is he optimistic about uh, the response of his readers to his, to his missive here? Um, could be, but I'm, in, I, I'm inclined to think that this is not personal. He's not writing to people he knows. So he doesn't really have any reason to be either optimistic or pessimistic. This is just sort of a broadside that has been sent out there among the, the believing Jewish communities in the, in the Roman world. He doesn't know one way or the other how the people who are part of this phenomenon of, of uh, rethinking the faith, I don't think he has any basis for knowing one way or the other whether they're going to respond to it. So I think this is more on the level of a strategy, it's like, it's like when I say to my child, now, we're not going to be disruptive, are we? <laughs> I mean, I may not be optimistic that my child is or is not going to be disruptive, but um, I'm, it, it, it's a stratagem that we use where we suggest what it is that I expect and what it is that I want and what it is that would be in everybody's best interest. And But we frame it in terms of, well, we're not, we're not that person, are we? No, we're not that person. We're, we're the other person. I think that's the stratagem he's using here. It's just a rhetorical way of saying, you really don't want to be the people who are of the hesitation. You want to people, be people who are of belief leading to life and the preservation of your very person. Now, there's all kinds of textual issues with the Habakkuk passage between how the Septuagint reads and how the Masoretic text reads. I won't get into any of that. My translation reflects how I have resolved all those issues. If any of you have questions about that, I'll be glad to entertain those, but I'm not going to, it's, it's very highly technical, and I don't want to get into it here. Okay, let me, let me make some general comments about the exhortation, and then I'll open it up to your questions or comments, and then we may or may not have time to go on to the next segment. I, I mentioned this last week, but I think it bears repeating. When we, when we think about how this applies to us in our day, he's talking about people who are consciously and explicitly rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus. But we know from other writings of Paul, like like the book of Galatians, we know from other writings that there there must be 50 ways to reject Jesus. You can explicitly and consciously reject him, but there are 49 other ways where you never explicitly, consciously uh, reject Jesus, but you go somewhere else with him. You, you, you have a different way of framing who he is and why he's important and how he's important. You're not believing the truth that Jesus himself taught and the truth that the apostles taught, and that's not the basis of your hope. The stuff that Paul has been talking about for four or five chapters, that's not the basis of your hope. It's something else. But it's all in the name of Jesus, right? You're a Christian, but you're not a follower of the Jesus who actually came and, and taught the truth and sent his apostles as spokespeople to explain that truth to us. You're not a follower of them. Well, what we have to remember, and we lose sight of this because it's our very jargon uh, legislates against this, it's not Christians who are going to be saved. It's Jesus followers who are going to be saved. Genuine, authentic Believing the Jesus of history, uh, according to what he really taught and who he really was, those are the ones who are going to receive mercy. It's not sufficient to be a Christian. There's all kinds of Christians who don't know Jesus at all. So these warnings that that Paul is issuing when we bring those forward into our day, that that's we need to translate them into. What I, what I don't want to do is reject the actual biblical Jesus and biblical gospel. Because if I do, I make myself an enemy of God, I have stomped on the Son of God who really existed, and I've made myself an enemy of God. There is no mercy and life for me. There is wrath and destruction for me. And it's very important to recognize that. But when we do recognize that, it, it's also interesting to note, if Paul were writing today, how would people in our culture generally look at Paul? He's a narrow-minded, dogmatic, out-of-touch, exclusivist, scripture geek who thinks he's the only one who knows anything about God in the Bible and that his followers are the only ones who will be saved. Well, yeah, that's exactly who Paul is, <laughs> That's right. So, by today's standards, that description would fit. But we have to remember something about Paul if we're going to frame him, put him in the right frame. Paul never demanded of any human being that they stop thinking for themselves. He never did that. Paul never demanded that people give him money. Paul never demanded that people are completely loyal to him as a person and to him alone. Never made that kind of demand on anybody. You go right on down the line, Paul would have been a terrible cult leader. I mean, he just was not about himself. Everything he did and anything that, uh, any steps he took, it was not about him. It was about God and the truth and therefore others' relationship to God and the truth. Why does he get so energized? Why does he want to persuade with all of his heart? Why is he so passionate about this and he wants to persuade people to believe this? Because to not believe it is their destruction. And he loves them enough to realize the stakes are too high for me to be cavalier about this and to be suave and sophisticated about this, to be a postmodern about this. I can't afford to be a postmodern about this because your destiny is at stake and you're going to destroy your very selves if you reject this truth that is found in Jesus and what he did for us. So, yeah, he's dogmatic. Yeah, he's exclusivist. But but Paul is a very intelligent, broad-minded, open-minded. I mean, this is the guy who opened up, who fought narrow-minded Jews who couldn't abide the fact that Gentiles could be in on this as well. Now, he, he, he's capable of being broad-minded when the truth is on his side, but what, he's, what he closes his mind around is there is one God who is the author of all reality, who is doing what he's doing, and he's doing it the way he's doing it, and we better get in touch with that. We can't afford to blow that off, and he's very passionate about that. And you see that coming through in this, in this whole section. So this is one of the many passages that makes it perfectly clear that it's the person who believes and continues to believe through thick and thin. That's the one who will be granted life. We already talked about that. But what's amazing is how far some of his readers have gone down that road, that paragraph about how heroic, how courageous they've been uh, as as so-called followers of Jesus. But now they're beginning to rethink it. So, I just wanted to comment on having grown up in a tradition that prided itself in the doctrine of eternal security and the doctrine that once saved, always saved. Now, I never knew a single person in my community, in my context, who would have ever used that as an excuse for not living a righteous and holy and godly life. if, If they were there, I didn't know who they were. But, so... You know, I, I don't think you can fault that tradition or that denomination for that. I, I just think they were a little short-sighted in the way they articulated their doctrine. Paul, Paul would certainly agree that if you have been chosen to be a child of God from before the foundation of the earth, then that's what you are, and that's what you will be. And no one is going to pluck you out of the Father's hands. If that's who you are you, you will make it to the end, and nothing can, can derail you. Paul certainly is a champion of that idea. But what that got translated into in more recent times is that if you make a decision, preferably public, but preferably public followed by baptism, uh, if, you make, if you make that decision, then that's it. The deal is sealed. Your destiny is sealed. You believed in Jesus, you got baptized, you, you, you're in. And it really doesn't make any difference what happens after this now. You can go live like hell and it doesn't really make any difference because you did what it was required to make yourself a child of God. Paul would not recognize that doctrine at all. That makes absolutely no sense. And clearly, this, he couldn't have written this paragraph if he believed that because this paragraph would be a lot shorter. He'd say, boy, it's a sure thing, once saved, always saved, because you'd be of big trouble if it weren't. And that's all he'd have to say. But he doesn't say that. He warns them, you've got a choice to make here. Are you going to stay the course, or are you going to bail? And what are the stakes? If you bail, you're bailing to your own destruction. If you stay the course, you're staying the course to eternal life and the blessing that God has promised. The, the problem is, that that doctrine of, of eternal security, what ultimately is a Calvinistic doctrine of election, got married with a, a, a different idea, a different concept, and that is that what saves us is the born-again experience. It's a religious experience that qualifies you to uh, to enter the kingdom of God. And we call it belief, we call it faith, but it's that It's that born-again experience. That's why in so many Christian traditions right now, telling your story is the most important thing you can do. What would we call it? Giving your testimony. Giving your testimony is the most important thing you can do because you're basically laying out your credentials. I'm a child of God because let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you how I had this experience that qualifies as a born-again experience. Nowhere in the Bible is being born again described as an experience that we have. It's not an experience. It's an objective reality that underlies my entire existence. I either am born from above, or I'm not born from above. I either am born by God as a child of God, or I ain't. But if you are, then the, the language that's used in John what is it, 4, three, 3, 4, is... Nicodemus, you have to be born from above. It's not enough to have a Jewish mama and papa. You have to have God give birth to you if you're going to belong to me. So how does that, what does that look like? It looks like, on the one hand, scores of different experiences. It's not just one qualifying experience. I have experience after experience after experience after experience where I'm tested. Do you believe or don't you believe, Jack? And it's the one who passes all of those tests to the bitter end who has been born from above, who is a true child of God. Okay, let me uh, pause there for your questions or comments or objections or sermons or soliloquies.
0: Thanks, Jack. I'm curious about how you put together that we should think for ourselves and that we shouldn't Rethink. I mean, you you were saying that you know some of these people who were following, now they're starting to rethink it. Oh, got it. Um, yes. And so, but I find myself, you know, qu- new questions come up, and it's like, oh, does this fit? You know, how does this fit? And does that change anything for me? And so I'm, um, I
1: don't know. I, I yeah, like no, I I see because I use the same word for. Right. by calling it rethink. When I say they're rethinking it, what I, what I mean is not that they're rethinking it. What I mean is that they are they're com- uh, they're coming to the opposite conclusion and pursuing their life from here on out, not believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the problem is not that they rethought it, really. The problem is that they didn't rethink it. Why, why was that an objection to them? because they were enculturated Jews, because they already had deeply ingrained in them the Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah isn't going to be crucified by the Romans. Now, somehow, in tension with that prejudice, they had gone ahead and believed that Jesus was the Messiah anyway. We don't know exactly why, but remember Jesus did perform a bunch of miracles and the big deal was he was raised from the dead the resurrection so probably on the force of the positive evidence they said well you know it bugs me that he got crucified but oh well i believe that Jesus is the messiah but there's a cognitive dissonance in them they they hold two contradictory beliefs at the same time the messiah can't die but Jesus, who died and got crucified by the Romans, is the Messiah. Well, those, those, there's, there's no compatibility between those beliefs. But they have not ridded themselves of the initial prejudice. Uh, it's still there. Well, you can live with that kind of tension in your intellectual life as long as your belief system is paying off for you. But when persecution comes and you're drug into the Colosseum or wherever, the Hippodrome or wherever, and are publicly insulted and beaten up on, after a while you go, yeah, what about that the Messiah can't really die part? Maybe I never should have believed this to begin with. Maybe I should have listened to my doubt back there. Maybe I should have. Well, what the whole book of Hebrews, the purpose of it, is to get people who began with that Jewish prejudice who are where that has surfaced again to become um, active an active doubt for them to rethink their prejudice that's what he wants them to rethink so it's really the the problem with them is not that they have rethought their commitment to jesus it's that they have never rethought their prejudice against a messiah being crucified so I don't know that I can prove this but Every, I mean, I, I've been studying Paul for decades now, and I have never, ever, ever seen any indication that Paul doesn't want us to think. And that's why he keeps appealing to, look what the prophet said, look what the scripture says, look what, look what follows from who God was in relationship with Israel past, back here in their history. Isn't this completely coherent and consistent? I mean, he's always, he's always trying to persuade us Never does Paul say, just shut up and have faith. He never does that. The next, very next verse, I don't think we're going to get here, but if we do, the very next verse is the most common verse that's used to support, just shut up and believe, kid. And I want to, I want to show you, that's, that's not even close to what Paul means in the next verse. There was a thread
2: running through the law that says, there is an earthly reward for living, keeping the covenant, right? I mean, as a nation, they were promised that if you if you stay in the saddle here, if you keep this contract with God, he will protect you.
1: Well, uh, yeah, that's the way I've looked at it my whole life. I'm rethinking that. I'm not sure it's a, you know, by calling it an earthly reward, I'm not sure we're giving it its full, what it fully deserves. Because... What is it that is promised there? It's the very thing that Habakkuk is talking about. I'm, the day is going to come where I am going to be your God, you are going to be my people, justice is going to reign, and this whole crazy upside-down world is going to be set right. That, that actually is what they're looking forward to. And why are they going to get that? Because that, in that day they're going to keep the covenant and God is going to be their God and they're going to be his people.
2: So among the Jew Jewish leadership, the Jewish culture of Jesus' time, wasn't there the belief that knowing the truth, believing the truth, being simpatico with God would show up in your life as material
1: blessing? Material. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure there were yeah, I'm sure there are a great number of people who believe that.
2: Yeah. And so Paul chooses the loss of material
1: uh-huh.
2: comfort as an indicator that boy something was going on with you. Right. And, and it almost feels like, in the, in the run-up and the excitement to their conversion, it's things go better with Jesus. Because if he is from God and we believe in him, we will have a reward. Just like we've been told all our lives, but we've been told it was ritual obedience. Now we're, we're discovering that it's personal obedience. And it's, it's sort of a repeat of that same error. Mm-hmm. That they may have been caught up in
1: yeah don't you think that's pretty normal i mean regardless of your culture though, just as human beings don't you think that we gravitate toward that kind of belief? Uh, if God is pleased with me if if God is all he 's cracked up to be he 'll bless me <laughs> i mean i I just think that's pretty human, and it's the dis- but you 're right i mean it's the disappointment of that that is uh that is the obstacle that we have to get past. Anything else? Okay, let, we have a little more time. Let's, let's start then. That's the end of the major chunk of, of the book of Hebrews. Now we start into the third chunk. So what is he doing in this third chunk? This is starting with verse, chapter 11, verse 1. He, he picks up on the theme that he just ended the last chunk with. Perseverance is the key. So he's going to talk about what is this belief exactly that we need to persevere in, that we need to hold on to and hang on to and not, not run away from and give up on. What is that? He's going to talk about the nature of that belief and the significance of that belief. So he's going to keep give us example after example after example from the people throughout the Scriptures who believed, and he's going to set them out there as an example of, here's here's somebody who believed. He doesn't actually always spell out, well, do you see exactly what they were doing? I think he's thinking we can figure it out. And so as we go through here... I'm going to do some explaining that Paul doesn't do about how it is that this person is believing a promise from God. But we're going to see all the ways in which they believed the promise that God had given them, and that's the belief. And then what's the significance of the fact that they believed? Well, sometimes he's just going to assert it, but sometimes he's going to go to the text to show you that from the text itself, we realize that God accepted them, approved of them, and it was going to bless them precisely because they believed. And he's just going to repeat that over and over and over again, example after example after example after example after example, so that, so that we have put before us this whole litany of people who illustrate exactly what Habakkuk was talking about. Here's a person who persevered in believing and therefore is going to save his soul, his, his person, and not be destroyed. And here's another one, and here's another one, and here's another one, and here's how this person did it, and here's how this person did it, and here's how this person did it. And then he's going to end that whole section by saying, we have a whole crowd of people waiting at the end of their journey, cheering us on. Go for it, Jack. Keep going. Keep running. Keep, keep hanging there. Don't give up now, okay? And and it's this litany of people that he's been talking about, okay? But it begins. This whole section then begins. What does the New American Standard have now? uh, Believe now. Faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The assurance. Oh, the assurance of things hoped for. Wow. Okay, that's even worse. It's the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence. The what? Conviction. conviction. Wow. Wow. Okay. The conviction of things not seen. Okay. That verse gets pulled out and is used to support one of the most diabolical doctrines that has ever been invented in all of human history. And that is, it reinforces this notion that it has so permeated the history of ideas that it permeates our culture today if you if you if any of you saw the movie um uh, lee Strobel's story um, the case for christ yeah it, it's it's one of the more interesting and better christian movies i've ever seen i mean it it has a lot going for it that I really appreciated it's it's not the same kind of one dimensional plastic characters who convert everybody around them uh, it's It's kind of real and gritty in a lot of ways and i i really I really like it but uh, it just stood out at me in this otherwise really pretty good movie. It just stood out at me a line that talked about, well, I think it's, I believe it's the wife talking to the husband. Well, you just have to believe. You just have to have faith. I can't remember what what phrase she used. That permeates our culture. If you don't have evidence. If you don't if your own intelligent reasoning doesn't convince you that something is true, there's another way to get there. You just have faith. You just believe, right? And we don't none of us blink because it is so ubiquitous in our culture, we don't even we don't even think about it. Oh yeah, yeah, that's what the Bible talks about. That's what Christians talk about. No, it's not. That faith defined in that way is never ever Defended in the Bible. What are we supposed to believe? We're supposed to use our God-given, cotton-picking heads to come to, to look at the evidence, look at the arguments, look at the reasoning, and decide what is true. What is the truth? What is my own intelligence? Tell me is the truth. And then if it's the truth, live your life in the light of that. Commit to it. Don't ignore it. Don't shine it on. Don't run away from it. It's true. So embrace it, and that's what everywhere that the Bible talks about belief. That's what it's talking about. Is coming, having come to the conclusion that all the evidence points to this being the truth. Then embrace it as the truth and go with it. That's believing it. Okay. Uh, I'm sure then these translators of the New American Standard are under the thrall of that of that other way of thinking. Well, okay, let's just all spend the next 30 seconds believing. Come on, you can do it. Come on. Believe, believe, believe. Get rid of those doubts. Just believe. As if it's some kind of subjective experience that I can conjure up and have, and God's impressed with it, God's pleased with it. That's what gains me eternal life, is being so successfully gullible that I can believe something, whether the evidence is there or not? That's just crazy. That's diabolically crazy, I think. Um, We'll we'll look next week at what Paul is actually saying, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying faith is having absolute certainty about something that any reasonable person wouldn't be certain about at all. (laughs) That's not faith. That's craziness. What he's, what he's saying is, I mean, it depends on how you translate these words, how you understand the vocabulary he's using. The first word is hupostasis. It's the hupostasis of things hoped for. If you're reading your Aristotle, that gets translated substance. But um, if, you're, if you're digging through the garbage piles of uh, the ancient world and you come across a title deed to a house that you own, that's the hupostasis for that house. It's the underlying basis for knowing that something is the case. Well, what, what are we talking about knowing here? My hope is in eternal life. My hope is that I am going to be someone who's going to receive the blessing of eternal life one day. What's my basis for thinking that I am going to be given eternal life one day? That is, what's the hypostasis for my hope? You following me? What's the underlying reality that gives me a justification or a basis for knowing that that hope belongs to me? It's my belief, Paul says. Your belief is your hypostasis, the underlying basis for your claim that the things you hope for are things you have a right to hope for. Your title deed is your basis for saying, I own that house. I can show you. I own that house. Your belief is your title deed on your inheritance of eternal life. I know that that's my inheritance because look, I got the title deed right here. I believe in the gospel. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's a far cry from the assurance of things hoped for. I mean, Look at what happens in the extremes in our culture. Is in, in, the, in the extremes, you get the so-called power of positive thinking. If you just believe something sincerely, intensely, hard enough, it's going to make it true? That We, sh- we of all people, should be running away from that as far as we can get. That's not why we are followers of Jesus. I'm not, I'm not hoping that Jesus is the Messiah and hoping that he was raised from the dead and hoping that I'm going to get eternal life uh, even though I have no evidence for it, but I'm going, to, I'm going to really believe it and God's going to honor my really believing it. No. If it's not true, I don't want to place any hope in it. If there's no reason to believe it, why would I believe it? We should be the most ruthlessly rational people on the planet if we're followers of Jesus. Now, the problem is, and this is, where, this is where people distance themselves from rationality, is there a lot of views of, if you go to your local atheist club, they'll have rules of a template of rationality that is incredibly truncated. You know, if you can't prove it with a geometrical proof, then it can't be true. Well, then, most of what you know, you don't know, if that's the case. I mean, life is way too complex to fit into somebody's nice, neat template for what makes something rational or not. That's a whole other question, and, and it's worth talking about it. It's, exa- it's worth exploring, and we could do that. But my point is, as mysterious and as powerful and as wonderful as God-given intelligence is, it's intelligence that leads us to truth, not wishful thinking, okay. and that we must use our intelligence and we must insist that our, that our beliefs and our doctrines be intelligent and measure up to a soundness of thought as God, as God gave us that. Okay, any last-minute comment on that before I let, we're out of time? But we'll, we'll pick that up next week.